Welcome to this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. I'm Pat Contry, and my esteemed guest this week is Kevin Lieber. You might know him as the host of the Vsauce 2 YouTube channel, but before that, he was also the eccentric, very entertaining Jerry Bloop. Welcome, Kevin. <laughs> uh, thanks, Pat. Thanks for having me, and thanks for bringing back the Bloop. I don't think bringing back the blue. Bring back the blue. Before we, could, <laughs> I don't think a lot of people know about that. <laughs> well, that's how I discovered you back in 2010 when uh, I was looking for new content producers for my website. At the time, the Punk Effect, I was starting to get going. I was searching out, finding people like uh, Matt Pat when he was still posting on game trailers when game trailers were still huge. Uh, Billy and Jay, the Game Chasers, and then I stumbled upon Jerry Blue. Uninformed Game Reviews, which was, I believe, a monthly series you did for about two years, uh, roughly, where you were just off-the-wall you know, character, uh, kind of, uh, let's just say, not the most intelligent fellow, yeah, but a bright red Budweiser or just Bud uh, sweatshirt. You had uh, a nice headband, um, and then you um, would just pretend to know what you were talking about doing game reviews. What was the impetus for that? Well, I was always, I've always been a huge fan of comedy. Um, you know, I guess you wouldn't know that now since I do mostly science and education stuff. Although I try to slip in some jokes and some humor into my videos still. But comedy was really my first passion for creating. You know, I, I did improv comedy in college. I was also the editor of our, like, comedy, like, kind of like an onion sort of section of the newspaper, of our college newspaper. So I did comic strips for the newspaper. And um, when YouTube came around, I, that's that's what I did. I started actually making cartoons. So the earliest videos I made were, like, anthropomorphic potato barfing cartoons. And that just took too long <laughs> to, to do animation. So eventually I started doing uninformed video game reviews, which is kind of like a, a parody on, you know, reviewing video games on YouTube, which at, at that time was very new. Did you get uh, garner inspiration from other YouTubers like James Rolfe, for example? Oh, yeah. The Angry Video Game Nerd was the first one I found. And then, of course, uh, the NES Punk. There were there were a handful of, of people back then doing video game reviews and you know, Jerry Bloop wasn't making fun of them. It was really just kind of like a vehicle for me to be silly and eat scrambled eggs off the floor and just kind of do strange stuff because I have weird ideas and I, I, I like to make uh, them come come to life. What were your comedic inspirations? Did you, was there a certain comedian you liked in the 80s or 90s or M Mel Brooks films, for example? Was there Did you glom on to a, a certain comedic styling? Yeah, I mean, I love absurdist humor mostly, but I love slapstick too. When I was a kid, I watched Three Stooges and the Marx Brothers. So did I. Dad. <laughs> oh, really? The marathons yeah. on the new, they, they had like the New Year's marathons. My, we would take them, tape them on the VHS. Yeah, yeah, I loved that stuff. And then yeah, Mel Brooks when I was a kid, you know, Spaceballs, and um, and then when I got a little bit older, you know, The Simpsons was a huge deal. I every single day I'd come home with a VHS. And we record every single rerun of The Simpsons, back back before DVDs, uh, kids. Were DVR. Uh, oh well, yeah. Well, way before, you know, you could just have before the internet, before DVR, before DVDs. You you couldn't. 
you had to tape things on the old VCR. So that's what I would do after school is record The Simpsons and just watch them ad nauseum over and over again. So in college, going back to the improv, you thought, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to take some comedic stylings that I grew up with in my formative years. I'm going to try to be entertaining on stage. How did that work out? Well, so what happened was, you know, I'm a quiet person. I'm an introvert. But for whatever reason, you know, I've always been able to make people laugh, I guess. So basically the director of the improv comedy group, uh, I happened to be in a class with. It, it was a public speaking class, actually. And I don't know. She just begged me to audition. She was like, you're so funny. You're so funny. You need to audition. And I was like, Ugh, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I can get up on stage. You know, it sounds kind of scary, actually. But she convinced me. I, I went to the audition. Um, I I was let into the group. Um, it was kind of a, it was a hard group to get into. You know, there were probably 40 people auditioning. and I think they probably chose about five of us. So um, I was one of them. And then a year later, she left and actually asked me to replace her as director. So then I did that for a couple of years. So here you are, you're a self-proclaimed introvert, and you're doing something that normally an extrovert would gravitate towards, uh, performance on stage. But improv comedy in particular is extremely difficult. And, it's, and it's, it's, it's strange because I did that too. And I was very introverted, and I did it – I only did it three or four times. It was like a thing where you showed up. It wasn't necessarily like um, massively organized. But there was a group that would do it like once a month or twice a month. And I tried it. I went by myself, didn't go with friends. I said, let me just check this out. And I decided to volunteer and start doing, uh, you know, skits and routines. And, I, and I, was, I wasn't great at it, but I wasn't terrible. Like, I think I did okay. But that to me was sort of the turning point where I, I found myself sliding on that scale of being an introvert to an extrovert, or at least conquering my fear of, of stage fright and performance. To that point, I was not terrified of it, but very uncomfortable and that helped sort of um, help pave the way, I guess, for later on with me being comfortable on camera or in front of a group doing a, a panel. And that's why I tell people, I give advice to people who say, Pat, how do you, you know, how, how do you get comfortable on video? How do you go on stage and talk? And how do you, I say, you just got to do it. You just got to get experience and it gradually, it gets easier. Yeah, it's a muscle and you got to, you got to exercise it. And, and eventually, yeah, you do get more comfortable and, you know, your experience is not, um, that rare. I think public speaking is considered the greatest fear in the United States. I think it's maybe death is number one, but it, it might <laughs> not be. I think public speaking might be above that. If it's not, then it's right below death. So, you know, a lot of people are scared of public speaking. And but when if you you also skipped out on paying some psychologists thousands of dollars to to teach you how to do, you know, exposure therapy, because that's pretty much what happens is you know, if you're having anxiety about some sort of situation, you take it one step at a time, build up towards, you know, talking on stage. And then instead of thinking it's really scary, it might still be scary, but you've mm, you flex that muscle enough where you're kind of can confront it and 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 it'll be OK. And you know that it'll be OK and you won't fall apart and you can do it. And you learned that. 
It's well, it's gradual exposure, right? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back to I think the Maury Povich show had people on stage. One of them was like afraid of pickles, so which is I, I think I'm I'm not making this up. So they had like someone come on stage dressed as a giant pickle, I believe, and chased her around, and she was terrified. And Maury's like, "What are you doing? It's just a giant pickle." And that's not probably the way you want to go. You'd start with like maybe a, a dog with a with a with a, with a pickle uh, costume on first, and then you build yourself up to a giant pickle. Am I, am I making this up? Or did this actually happen? <laughs> I don't know. That could have been one of your your fantastic dreams that you had, or um, but I don't know. Maybe maybe the pickled dog costume is too far. Maybe just start with like a simple cucumber salad. <laughs> so, what did you go to college for? Uh, well, initially, I went to Drexel University in Philadelphia for computer science. Me too. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I lasted three weeks. How long did you last? Uh, I lasted two semesters, just about two semesters, and I was failing. I think calculus was my Achilles heel. Um, plus, I was not disciplined at all until probably the end of sophomore year. So I just had to get out of that. Yeah, yeah, me too. I, I could tell right away that it wasn't for me. So, you know, and that school was very expensive. And so I just left and went back home to, to Cooperstown and and got a job at the Baseball Hall of Fame, actually. Cooperstown. I think I was there when I was four years old. Now they have the, the Barry Bonds ball with the asterisk uh, there, which is hysterical. Uh, you're a baseball fan? Yeah. I mean, I grew up, um, you know, around it. So I worked in baseball shops. And Cooperstown is a very, very small village. In the off season, it's less than 2,000 people, I think. So it's really tiny. So it 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 is a tourist destination in the summer, of course, because of the Baseball Hall of Fame, but all the shops there are just baseball souvenirs, and the whole town is basically built upon the backbone of baseball. So obviously, the the biggest weekend of the year would be you know when they have the Hall of Fame ceremony, um, and that's probably when you get like you know thirty thousand people show up. Uh, they are just just crammed in, but the rest of the year, uh, ghost town for a chunk of it. Yeah. Oh, totally a ghost town. Yeah. When I so you know. I left college. I was in the fall, so I got a job at the Hall of Fame in the fall. There's nobody there in the off season. It's cold. You know, the winters in upstate New York uh, get pretty frigid. So there's not a lot of people. It's not. A, it's not a hot spot destination for tourism, exactly. So you know, I just walked around the the Hall of Fame as an usher with nobody to ush <laughs> anywhere. I don't know if uh, if that makes any sense. But is that a verb? I, I, that a, I don't a... know. To to ush. To Ush. And so, Usher, yeah. So you, you gradually uh, make your way to YouTube. I'm guessing you had an office job at some point? Yeah, well, so after um, after the Hall of Fame, you know, I didn't want to go to school. I didn't – there wasn't anything I could think of that I wanted to, to do, which sounds terrible, but um, it's true. I was very kind of confused about what sort of path to take, and I, I love to play music, so – I mean, I told my parents I would just be a dishwasher and, and start a band and be happy doing that. And they were not happy <laughs> with that, uh, you know, life goal. So they were like, nah, you have to go to school. So I was like, all right. So I went to SUNY Fredonia instead because it was cheap. What was your instrument of choice? Uh, guitar. Lead guitar, bass, rhythm? Um. Lead guitar and singing. I like to write songs. Really? I did not know that about you. Wow, look at that. Learning something new. So how did you transition from doing 
some of the, I think, most insane, in a good way, videos on YouTube, so much so that I was like, oh, this, this caught my eye for originality, and then gradually transitioned to working for Vsauce. Well, because those those crazy videos, the, the Jerry Bloop videos, were on Vsauce. So what happened was, you know, Michael Stevens created Vsauce to be a video game comedy channel, because at that time, there weren't any video game comedy channels. I mean... This is a long time ago. There was just not a lot of people on YouTube, and especially doing it, you know, full time, and doing like non-vlog style of content. So there was twelve of us out there. That's about it. <laughs> yeah. It was a very sparse yeah. group. It was like a classroom size of, of non-vloggers. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. So yeah, he he created Vsauce, and it was supposed to be a collaborative collaborative channel. Like Michael wasn't necessarily. The host. It was a bunch of different people. So Andre from Black Nerd Comedy contributed to it. Uh, this couple, Screen Screen Team Media, I think they were called Wacky Gamer. There was a bunch of us, and I was one of them. He so Michael has a really good sense of humor, a really strange sense of humor, just like I do, um, just like you do, obviously. So you know that's how we bonded was over our our love of, of weird comedy and he loved Jerry Bloop and wanted Jerry Bloop on Vsauce and just cold emailed me out of the blue and was like, hi, you know, my name's Michael. I have this, this new channel called Vsauce. Do you want to put your Jerry Bloop videos on here? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and what was the reception to those videos like? It was poor, uh, <laughs> which is an understatement. It was, I mean, it was about 50% likes to dislikes. So. Which is, well, that's bad for YouTube, though. But did you learn a lesson about, I guess, how niche your comedy stylings were at that point? It was a pretty rude awakening because, yeah, I had started to build up a, a little bit of a following on my own. But I think mostly, you know, if anybody had found my videos and didn't like it, they just went away. I had never exposed those videos to just a general audience. And, I don't remember how many subscribers Vsauce had at that time. I want to say 27,000 maybe. Back so, in what, 2010 or so, 11? Yeah, June to June 2010. I think Jerry Bloop went up in August 2010. Well, 27,000 back then is a ton though. I mean, we look at the scale of where we are. Um if you had if you had 100,000 back then, you were considered, you know, one of the tops like 7 years ago. So yeah. that's a pretty sizable channel then because there's so, obviously there's so many more people using YouTube now than, than there were seven, eight years ago. Yeah, it's like you, it's like inflation. It's like YouTube inflation. <laughs> so, well, that's why I said yes. I was like, oh my gosh, 27,000 subscribers. Like this is going to be awesome. And it, it really was not awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, 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 like you said, you, you had some people that love your videos on your own Kevin Lieber channel. That's where I saw them. And then you start uploading somewhere else to a larger audience and you're like, okay, this is my chance to shine, right? And then it's like, oh, okay. It's sort of a slap back to reality that maybe this can't catch fire like maybe I thought it would. It was a really fast slap back to reality because we only uploaded two of them. you know. <laughs> and the first one, Michael specifically did an intro for us. So it's still on there. If you just go to Vsauce and sort by oldest video first, you'll see it. Sort by lowest, lowest view count, right? That might, that might help yeah. too. <laughs> sort by highest dislikes. <laughs> um, so we stopped. And I think after that, I came up with a concept of um, dubbing old public domain footage 
to be like video game commercials. It was like video game commercial parodies where I used old public domain footage. So it was like, I don't know. It was weird again. And people didn't like that either. So you started, you started to learn that the mainstream wasn't really your cup of tea in, ter- in terms, <laughs> in terms yeah, of my, producing content. My sense of humor was, I guess, too weird at that time. I mean, it's, it's strange to think today because there's a lot of really, really popular, really weird comedy on YouTube that gets, you know, millions of views per upload. But I don't know. Back then it was different and audiences, the, the, the smaller audience that was on YouTube was not receptive to it. And, and I get it. You know, it's it's a global audience on YouTube. So comedy is subjective. And the things that I thought were funny growing up in New York in the United States of America, I guess, made little sense to someone in, you know, the UK or Canada or no less India. Isn't it also the fact that it might it's kind of similar now, but I, I imagined back seven years ago that. Uh, a lot of the audience had a, had trouble distinguishing between uh, uh, the individual who's doing the performance and the performance itself. So to them, you're one of the same person. And I'm guessing some thought that Jerry Bloop was a real person and not just a character you were, you were portraying. So maybe that turned them off. No, totally, totally. That was a huge problem. Yeah. So that was a lot of the negative comments. You know, it was a small percentage of comments that would just say, you know, this isn't funny, which, okay, you know. Not everything is funny to everyone, but there were a large number of comments that were like, you know, this guy is an idiot. Why? What is the point of this? And they took it literally at face value. And there's no way around that. You can't be like, start the video and say, hey, guys, I'm I'm Kevin Lieber. I'm a real person. And today I'm going to be playing. You know, it's like kind of ruins the joke. Yeah, I I guess that's how the younger audience now they have to. Maybe it's different because they don't realize that people act and perform. I don't know. But I've seen that myself where people, I'm doing a Pat the NES Punk video and people are like, wow, you're a nutcase. And it's like, you really think that Pat in real life is running around in a track and field video with a guy shot in a megaphone? You think this is a documentary? You know, you don't <laughs> think this is scripted at all? Some no. of this stuff? I, I don't know. It takes all kinds, right? So – so Michael starts Vsauce and he, he starts off doing video game content and gradually I guess it shifts. There's a shift towards more edutainment, which is the buzzword of the day and a, and a popular genre, which back then wasn't really a thing. Yeah, yeah. It was not a thing really at all back then. You know, what happened was – so we started – so everyone that was contributing to Vsauce kind of stopped doing it in a way and I didn't. So that's like the first thing. That is kind of unique about my situation is that it was a collaborative channel, but I'm the only one who kind of just didn't go away because Michael and I clicked so well and we were both really interested in creating, you know, okay, what kind of content do people want to watch and that we're we're interested in and what are we interested in talking about and what are we excited about? So. It shifted from video game comedy to kind of best of the web stuff. So you had shows like IMG, which were funny pictures, loot, which were cool things you could buy online. And then Michael did one video called Blow Your Mind. And it was a series of like optical illusions and I think like Easter eggs in movies and video games. Like, like did you know kind of stuff. And so he did an episode of that and then was like, and then asked me if I wanted to continue that as a series and we would call it Mind Blow. 
So that was the first impetus of, wow, we want to make educational videos that are interesting to people and sort of stumbled upon it, not by accident, but it wasn't the design at first. It's like, oh, we, we do one. Oh, there's interest here. Let's keep this going. And I like and maybe you both said, oh, I enjoy doing this this type of video as well. Yeah, it wasn't like a, all right, let's sit down and figure out what Vsauce is going to be and what the kids are going to watch. And, you know, it wasn't like that at all. It was very organic and it was a lot of trial and error. And even if you watch Mind Blow, which is the same show, but if you watch, you know, the third episode compared to the 12th episode, compared to the 50th episode, compared to the 100th episode, it's extraordinarily different in terms of the tone and the content and what I talk about and how I talk about it. So um, it's definitely an iterative process, um, which I think everything has to be when you're doing things creatively and you're trying to adapt and you get older, you know? So it's like, um, I don't know, you kind of change as a person, your content changes along with you, and, and so does the audience. So you're saying Jerry Bloop was destined to die at some point. It just it just couldn't survive the long haul of YouTube. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, probably not, man. Like, I don't know if I was still doing Jerry Bloop right now, if I would be uh, super happy with that. <laughs> I think that it, Jerry Bloop was great for that moment in time. So you go from doing the Jerry Bloop videos, and plus you were doing like tub the tub interviews with uh, YouTubers like John Tron, Peanut Butter Gamer. I think a couple others. I think we had planned to do one at some point until you stopped doing them. So Pat was left in the dust, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> so you go from doing these videos that I, I want to say probably at most got 10,000 views um, for on yeah. these Jerry Blute videos. Now you're doing videos that are getting 500,000, 800,000, a million. Um, what was that like during that transition where you're like all of a sudden it's like, oh, my God, I have uh, the amount of people that fill a city now watching my videos. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's odd to say, but it was mostly just the satisfaction that like, wow, I made a, a, a good video that a lot of people wanted to watch. It was less about thinking, I can't believe, I don't know, that I made something that was famous or anything at all like that. It was more like just kind of like personal milestones, I guess, in a way where, you know, once I had made a video that got 100,000 views, it was like, oh my gosh, I can't. Imagine, you know, what I have to do next to get 150 uh, or and et cetera, et cetera, all the way up. Yeah, until at, eventually at some point it's like you're getting millions of views and it's you're just like, wow, people really like this and I guess I'm doing something right. So then you, it splits off to Vsauce 2 from Vsauce 1. You now figure – you and Michael are like, okay, there's something here. People – don't just want to go on YouTube and watch cat videos as great as they are. They want to actually be entertained, but also learn something at the same time. You know, learning, learning's fun if you make it fun. Right. So when you got to that point, did you figure, okay, I'm actually creating content that's actually somewhat good for mankind. You know, I'm actually contributing to humanity. I'm enlightening people in some aspect versus just doing, you know, popcorn, uh, fluffy filler content. Well, yeah, I mean, that was definitely always part of, I would say, like kind of like the unspoken mission statement um, as we were developing Vsauce. You know, it, it would be completely naive for me to and revisionist for me to say that was what it was to begin with, because it wasn't. It was Jerry Bloop and com- video game commercial parodies and, and whatever else. But um, over time, as we developed the audience and kind of figured out that 
you know, comedy is tough to do. Um, it's not universally appealing, but learning is, or at least, you know, we like to think that learning is universally appealing. So, you know, let's focus on that. And um, the one of the big kind of breakaway moments was Michael made a video about hot peppers or hot hot sauce. Like, what what's the hottest thing you could eat? Just because he was interested in that. Like, he had an interest in hot food and and then kind of tackled it in a scientific way and started talking about Scoville units and like the different levels and all of that really at a time that where no one was doing that style of content and it was extremely popular it was like there was a huge audience to learn that type of content and Vsauce just kind of never looked back ever since then Wow, he almost put it together to make Hot Pepper Gaming, which would be like five years later. He was so close to the – he was right on the cusp of the idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at some of the older videos. It's like, yeah, some got a couple hundred thousand views. Uh, a clickbaity one with Princess Peach in a, in a thong bikini got two million views seven years ago. But then the next one gets 25,000 views. The next one gets 100. The next one gets 91, 70. Jerry Bloop gets only 39. Um, so then, but then gradually you see, oh, they all hit a million. You know, then, then the minimum was maybe 500,000, and it just keeps going up from there. Then, you know, it, it, you see it build upon, I guess, as you see the change gradually come. It's very interesting if you just look at the older videos. And it looks like one of the jump-off points was uh, the Michael Revealed video from six years ago. And then at that point, Mario's Secret Balls, Panties for Trees. And then it, it looks like it gets more and more gradually educational from there. Yeah, you know, I started a show called uh, – what the? it was called FAC. So it'd be what the fact and fact fact was an acronym for facts and knowledge. And it was just me looking into some sort of topic that I thought was interesting. So I did a fact about crossbows or lasers, lasers, or, <laughs> I don't know, deadly plants, killer animals. Um, and yeah, I would just read about stuff and, and talk about it. And that was essentially it. And at that time that was very unique. And this is before all those list sites that, came about that now a lot of YouTubers and they do the list videos. It's like the 10 biggest mass disappearances that happened. So before all that, which which made, I think, that, that content a lot e easier, the edutainment, you were out there grinding away looking up all this information independently, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. The internet was just really different then. You know, today I think a lot of things have changed in terms of, you're right, being just kind of snackable content where you just have to click on it <laughs> you know what i mean and it yeah it is like top 10 whatever um but back then it wasn't really like that so it was a lot more kind of doing the research and just picking out things and and, and doing the best you could with with what you were given basically in terms of the changes that you've seen on youtube and i guess this goes along somewhat probably with the change in, in our culture or online culture with social media has that affected the sort of content you do on Vsauce over the years? Not that you've tailored it towards it, but have you seen maybe a change in how the audience responds to similar sorts of videos over the years, or do you sort of not concern yourself with that? Oh, I totally concern myself with that. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm hyper aware and, and hyper interested in what audiences expect and and what they think about um, content. So. I've definitely changed, and I continue to think of new ways to kind of combat that. I think one of the big things that changed was, you know, we did all of these best of the web style videos like Loot and IMG and, and Mindblow and BDP and 
five four three two one, which you were in an episode of. What? What? <laughs> Pat was in a Pat was on a Vsauce video. What? Yeah. What was it? The the rarest video five rarest video games. Five five rarest videos games something like that. So yeah, search just Vsauce and I guess maybe Pat and it might come up or rarest video games and yeah you you had me you gave me like about a week's heads up like hey Pat can you help out I'm like oh I got it this is a big channel uh, so I did that yeah, yeah yeah that was awesome so um so basically the way that that would work is that you know I would put together a bunch of stuff in an episode choose the one item that I thought was like the most interesting make that the thumbnail and the title so you know the thumbnail and the title like for that one, it would be five rarest video games. But then once you watch the video, there's like a bunch of other stuff. There could be like four tallest buildings, three most amazing jugglers. I, I don't know. But the the point is, is that over the years, so many bad actors, I would say, kind of took advantage of that style. And that's basically what where clickbait came from, where you would trick people into clicking on something. And then before you know it, it's not what you asked for. So um, when you say tricking, you mean by like a deceptive thumbnail or, or maybe showing, you know, some some sort of boobage in a thumbnail or just some or maybe just has the thumbnail has nothing to do or the title has really nothing to do with the video content. Yeah, I mean, the worst offenders would be someone. Yeah, something where it has nothing to do with uh, with the content. But yeah, even just having like like sexually suggestive thumbnails and, and there was so much of that. That um, I think audiences today, and especially kids who grew up with YouTube, because hello, now kids have grown up with YouTube, um, they are so, so aware of that. Where, you know, when you and I started, that was a new thing. And it's very different for us because we didn't grow up with the internet. You know, we grew up with, I don't know, a telephone and maybe cable television, but, you know. That was about it. We're that we're, we're that generation that sort of straddled the internet age. So we, we're the last one that saw society before the internet and then afterwards. So I think we have a different perspective from the generation coming up. We can say, well, back in my day, we didn't have the internet. No, we didn't. You know, but then we got it and we learned with it. And then we, well, I think we're of two different minds because of that. You know, once you, people that are basically you know late twenties and older, you know, can say that. What do you think is attractive about that styling of video, like the list videos and the top tens? Is it just it's so much easier to digest information in that way because because there's a sort of, sort of a um, a rhythm to it to to being fed the information and it's almost like it's a reveal. It sets off some sort of serotonin, it's like oh, I want to see what three is and two and one. Oh, it's building up suspense. Oh yeah, definitely. I think it's a couple of things. I I definitely think that's one of the things is that it's kind of like a it's like a story and you, you need to see how the story ends. So, and and you progress along the way very clearly with different, you know, demarcation points. But I also think that, you know, it's interesting that it's usually 10 because I think that's really the limit of what our brains can handle in a way for like short term memory. You know, it's like why telephone numbers are 10 digits. You know, it's not like, Nobody's making really like top 400 lists because that would be insane. It'd be really long. And, you know, by the time you got to 479, you completely forgot what number 498 was. Going back to 
we, we touched upon social media, I think, very slightly. Do you think that has contributed or been detrimental to rational discussion? Well, um, I don't I don't know if I can say it's been detrimental to rational discussion. I don't know how it what rational I don't remember what rational discussion was before. <laughs> I, I guess it was uh, just less volatile because you had less people involved and less perspectives involved for you know 99.9999999999% of human history it's only been in the last you know since the internet but really since facebook and twitter and and social media have been so popular that you go the most of most of your life just talking to the same people who have the same information as you so there's a lot less opportunity to just be constantly angry and argue with people i i, I think well, for for the vast majority of humanity, you, you're the amount of people you came into contact with was very small, right? So you start you start back in the caveman days, and you have a small tribe that you know everyone there, and you talk to them, and then that continues up probably for a long period of time, where you have a village, or you, you live in a you know you, you live somewhere in the fields and do your farming work and go back to the farmhouse, but for for 99.9% of, of the existence of humanity, you weren't exchanging a lot of different types of information with people, correct? And then you have in the past only 75, 80 years, if you want to even say newspapers is, is really a, a sort form of exchange of idea. That's only a few, what, 300 years, 350 years newspapers um, to get the information out. Then you hit radio 100 years ago. Then you get TV. And then you have, you know, cable Internet, and so it seems like maybe we, our minds, our brains, haven't been keeping up with how informa- how quickly information is now getting out there, and the abundance of information versus how it used to be. Yeah, well, well, totally. I mean, you're spot on with yeah. Since the industrial revolution, you know, that was really when jobs became a thing. So, like specialized jobs. So, and so then you would have like centralized work areas and that sort of thing. And then you would have, you know, building out of cities like like London, for instance. And, and and when it comes to newspapers, I mean, even newspapers, it's like most people couldn't read still for uh, until recently until, yeah, like a hundred, roughly 120, 130 years ago, you know, depending on where you are in the world, of course, uh, literacy was not common. So couple that with now we have the Internet and it's global and anyone with the connection can add their two cents about something and everyone has different life experience and they have you know different motivations and they have different phobias and personalities and all of a sudden it's just this gigantic pile of completely different people who really yeah like a maelstrom of, of different people, different ideas from different subcultures. Yeah, who, like, it's really unnatural that that we're communicating. It's it's extremely unnatural. There's no other way to put it. Like I don't know how anyone could argue that the way that we communicate today with the internet, and, and as someone you know, you and I both work on the internet, um, the way that we are doing that is is unnatural. 
It's unnatural. So the amount of information that we're now getting from multiple angles, I mean, you go on Twitter and you have 35 different news pieces come up just from Twitter. You go on Facebook and you see people interacting about all different sorts of serious subjects. Unfortunately, a lot of times they're they're tragic. Um, What you're saying perhaps is that we're not necessarily built to handle the information uh, unloading on us in this way. No, I mean, we have cognitive limits. Our brains aren't like infinitely capable of understanding things or processing information. So, you know, we can only go so far before all of a sudden we just start, you know, feeding confirmation bias and setting up filters to kind of create shorthand and shortcuts for, uh, you know, pigeonholing different ideas as this or that. And before you know it, it's like there's no more dialogue. Do you think it was evolutionary, an evolutionary trait, or just uh, just how we developed, where there wasn't really a need to have nuanced uh, nuanced thinking or having a, I guess, give and take discussion of information? Maybe maybe we're not built for that naturally. Is that a possibility? Well, we are. No, we absolutely are built for that naturally, just not at the scale that we're talking about today. So you know, like language is thought to be basically a form of grooming so you know the great the great apes primates they they groom each other and you know we think of it as they're just helping each other out by picking the ticks or whatever or the <laughs> the fleas off of each other but that's not really what it is what they're doing is it's social bonding they're like massaging each other basically because they need to uh to bond socially with each other in order to to help the group survive so, you know, we do that. Humans do the same thing at a more advanced level with language where, you know, we need to talk to people every single day, you know, whether it's family and, or, you know, loved ones, friends and keep in touch with them as a way of surviving. It's just part of the human experience. And I mean, you could see that with any isolation study where it does not take long to if you stick somebody in like a really quiet room <laughs> with no one to talk to for them, for things to go south quickly. So perhaps the exchange of information, maybe I'll restate this. We're not, maybe maybe it's it's so new, the amount of information we're getting is that we don't know how to, pro- like you said, there's filters. So we can't process all the different angles, all the different arguments at once. So we're just going to, maybe not ignore it, but not use that information to sort of change what we already no, so that's confirmation bias. Yeah, and I think that at the end of the day, we're subconsciously going to see things in in the way that best fits our own survival, because that's the way that life works. Is that you know we are a, a, a series of of genes that you know want to reproduce, and the however we can to to make that happen is the way that we're going to act and and behave and. survive so um, I think that there's a lot of that that people don't recognize consciously but that is going on subconsciously so is there a way to combat that especially with the tumultuous uh, society we have right now and social political issues it seems like it's so hard to even come to a common ground uh, at times how do you think we combat that how do you think we communicate differently in order to come to at least an understanding, maybe not necessarily agreement, but just an understanding that we're getting our our opinions across in a way that doesn't seem insulting to a, a differing counterpoint. Well, I think by um, 
practice, by engaging, by listening, by learning, by reading. I mean, I think that it's definitely like a lifelong journey to to continually better yourself in, in every way. And, and that socially is definitely part of that. I mean, I think that one of the one of the things that I work on so much on Vsauce 2 with my scripts is trying to word things in a way that people won't take it the the wrong way or, or that can't they can't twist my words because that is a really hard thing to do you know I think that a lot of people uh actually don't really think too much before they speak I, I don't mean to sound like that's like a cliche but I mean like literally like like people don't even realize that they're just kind of like speaking without I don't know having that own internal dialogue their own conversation in their own head before expressing or communicating. So a lack of introspection about the stimulus coming in, saying, okay, what does this actually mean and why am I going to respond this way? You're saying that it, we are too accustomed perhaps to just belting out the thought that comes into our head, uh, whether or not it's rational or reasonable, or whether or not it's even correct to the situation. Yeah, with, with, with no regard for how the other person could perceive it. And I think that's what causes so many problems. Do you think it comes down to personality type and behavior? I don't know. I think it's probably a, a yeah. That's my, well, it's a mixture of things. It's definitely a, a tremendous mixture of things. It it has to do with you know how well people can actually think. You know what levels of thought and analysis they're capable of. Um, it also definitely has to do with uh, personality type and. Um, yeah, life experience, you know, it's like, well, if, you know, my dad always treated me this way and now I respond this way to these types of people, you know, it's like, it's really complicated. Being a human being is remarkably complicated. And that's why I think we have so many problems with trying to figure out how everyone, you know, can get along. You're familiar with the Myers-Briggs 16 personality types? Uh, yeah. So for those that, that there don't know that, it, it postulates that there is really only 16 personality types, and we are all split among those. However, out of those 16, there's only about, I think about three that's the vast majority of of the population. And then so you, you as you wind down, it's like, oh, well, this one is only 8% of the population. This one's only 5 And there's even a couple that's about 1% or less the rarest personality types. So it might be just a perspective of thinking that it's hard to overcome just based upon the personalities themselves. But how do you, I don't know how you bridge those gaps. I'm not positive how you can do that or if it's even possible. It might be that, and this isn't trying to sound insulting to different personality types like the, like the uh, I don't know, there's ones like at the top of my head, the protagonist. I think there's a mastermind. There's, you know, there's the hostess or host one. Uh, maybe some aren't as, um, they're not built personality-wise to accept different types of information as easily as others and to process it and to spit it back out. I don't know. But that's a, that's a tough sort of a bridge to cross. Well, no. Well, I, I mean, I agree with you. And I think from an evolutionary standpoint, you know, then that's probably there's a reason for that. You know, the the entire point of evolution is to just spit out as many variations as possible and then see what survives, basically, uh, you know, to put it crudely. So it makes sense that there are tons of different 
ways of interacting with the world and and none of them are invalid you know but i think that the people do get caught up in thinking that you know their perspective their life experience their consciousness is the only valid one and that's when you run into problems yeah it's something that even myself i've had to struggle with where i think about things a certain way and i know i think a certain way and it probably took probably till my mid-20s where i realized that because i think this way doesn't mean everyone else does they have a different way of processing information. They might think about something in a far different way, whether more quickly or take a lot longer to think about it than I do. And that's a that's a, a very, I think, very tough concept for some people to wrap their minds around that. Just because I live and exist in a certain way doesn't mean other people live and exist in that way and process information the same way. And Again, I'm not sure if there's an easy solution, especially when it comes to some of the larger issues, because that has also to do with your your subculture, where you grew up, your experience, your your, your outside world stimuli. But it's just I, just the awareness of that fact. I think hopefully will help level things a bit. Otherwise, what we're saying is that nuanced thinking can be bred out eventually because there's no evolutionary <laughs> advantage to it, perhaps. Well. I mean, sure. I mean, I think anything could be bred out. <laughs> Why not that? Yeah, for sure. But, uh, as, Fra- as Frank says, the smart people have to have kids too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, though, yeah, uh, I-, I agree that, you know, de- dedicating yourself to kind of like learning about all of these kind of things is is the best panacea, I think, to just feeling kind of like the world is a, a pile of chaos. You know, it, it helps kind of elucidate really what's going on. At least it, it has for me. And that's that's the kind of thing that I love to read about and um, listen to podcasts about and and make my videos about. I love that podcasting has become more popular because that allows free-form conversation like we're doing now. You, you, it's, it's, it's not just like a two-minute video and, and it is what it is. It allows you know, allows ideas to, to get thrown around in your head and you can spit them back out and you can massage them. But reading, do you think reading is maybe not on its way out, but is, is that dying out? And I'm ta- not talking reading uh, Snopes or Wikipedia, but reading actual books. Do you think that's going to stick around for that much longer with kids growing up with iPads and smartphones being thrown in their hands when they're a year old? Well, I definitely think that everyone, not just kids, have a lot of things vying for their attention. They have a lot of ways to distract themselves and there's a lot of content out there, you know, which is why all of these industries that used to be just total domineering powerhouses, whether it's newspaper or, you know, even TV today, um, they're struggling, or at least they're seeing declines. Well, newspapers definitely are struggling, but TV seeing declines in ratings year over, year over year because, well, there's YouTube, there's Netflix, there's any number, there's bloggers, there's Instagram, there's Twitter. Like you can, you can spend your time in so many different ways. But you know, one thing I do think is I don't know about books. I mean, the, uh, books will always exist. They're the best way to explain a lot of information you know like when i do my videos that are 12 to 15 minutes long or whatever there's so much information that i leave out like so it's it's insane because i'll read 
five, six, seven books and then condense it into, you know, 1700 words or whatever, which is entertaining. And I, and I, and I do my best to cover the most important, well, what I see as the most important aspects of what I read, but at the same time, sometimes I feel like, you know, you people should just read these books because you'll get a lot more out of it. What you're, what you're doing is conducting proper research, like we used to we used to do on essays and term papers in college. And my fear is always that that's going to be a lost art in terms of going to your library, getting out actual books to see what information is there, going into the journals, the scientific journals, for example, going onto the computers and looking at all the, you know, the magazine articles that you can get from the you know past generations because that exists as well, and then condensing information from multiple sources and coming up with your own argument based upon that, or at least maybe um, extrapolating on an idea or synthesizing that information. Uh, because again, this is, we're the last generation where we did research right before the internet and then with the internet. But even when the, I was allowed to use the internet for my research, um, I was allowed like maybe one or two sources at most. I still had to use, you know, books, journals, magazine entries, something that was tried and true and vetted information. And personally, I think it's scary where there's an over-reliance on a single source for information uh, nowadays, whether it's Wikipedia, whether you do a Google search and the first one or two sites you see, you click on and you think that's correct. And I'm not sure if there's a quick answer to that other than edu- educators um, demanding that uh, individuals go back and dig deeper in order to really get to the bottom of things and, again, have a better vetted source. Because anyone can write something on the Internet. It's a lot hot, harder to get something published. And especially if it's a scientific uh, journal entry, that's then peer-reviewed and there can be counter studies done and can be written about and discussed. And at least there it's an idea that's, that's um, lobbied around a little bit more than some random person's Internet site. Yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised at how many junk science journals that are there that don't peer review and they just publish whatever. It's actually disturbing. But <laughs> aside from that, um, I, I agree with you. You know, Wikipedia is fantastic. I love Wikipedia. Um, it's so good for summaries and for introductions to topics. It, it's a, incredible for both of those things. And I like the fact that they are crowdsourced. So, there are, you know, there are a lot of hands in the till in terms of trying to make sure that the information is accurate, which it often is not. There, it's often it's not perfect, but yeah, books have not only books, but first uh, first person uh, sources are the best. Like if uh, my process is usually to uh, start on the internet, get a taste for a topic, order a bunch of books. Read the books, but then find experts that are cited in the books and then just reach out to them and then hopefully hope that one or two of them bite and I can have a conversation and then go from there. Because actually speaking with well, – my voice just cracked. I'm going through puberty. You're getting excited about the I'm research getting, process. <laughs> uh, I'm getting, I get excited about talking to scholars because – there's just nothing like it. You know, you talk to them and that half an hour conversation was better than, you know, 14 hours of reading. So these are people that are like, you're doing what? You're doing a YouTube video about this this topic that I've studied my whole life. Ooh, this could be exciting. You know, getting the information out to a, a crowd that would never, ever learn about it, perhaps. 
But, but you're talking about research for your Vsauce uh, videos. So we're talking – this sounds like a lot of time being put in to these videos. Yeah, it takes about six weeks to do uh, one of the big idea videos. So it is a lot of time. You know, it's – it's Six well, weeks. <laughs> it's, it's like a dissertation what you're doing for each video. It kind of is. It kind of ends up being, yeah, like a, like a dissertation in video format. Yeah. Wow. It's and the channel can you know you can be supported that way, um, or do you have to diversify and have other avenues to keep the channel alive? Yeah, you know. So Vsauce launched the the Curiosity Box last year. We just hit our one year anniversary of the box, and it's a subscription box. You know, like a like a loot crate or a birch box, but it's for you know uh, learning. It's for science science toys and and education and we're really excited about it so that's one of the ways that you know we've come up with to generate revenue uh while we're taking so long making these videos and i know the audience gets really frustrated and i get really frustrated like i wish that i could crank these out quicker but you know i i can't learn all of this stuff and speak with these experts and just idea eight you know the set and all this stuff it just takes a it takes a really long time and then you know then the audience watches it in 12 minutes and they're like uh, see you in see you in six months <laughs> sure is is it discouraging maybe that the youtube um youtube landscape is now not the place to do the sort of content that you are doing because it's so hard to sustain itself, like working six weeks on one video versus people that do vlogs or do drama videos or do, you know, what I like to call like the cheap, you know, um, potato chip videos that you want, you, you consume it once and you're never going to watch that individual video again versus content that can stand the test of time. Do you think about that? Does it bother you or it's just the reality and you have to get used to it? Well, it used to bother me, so I was reluctant for a while um, to do this style of content. So, I mean, if 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 you have followed Michael on Vsauce or Jake on Vsauce three, you know they've both had really long turnarounds for kind of like years now, where you know they just take as long as they take to make their next video, and and I I did I was adverse to that. I just felt like it was too long without creating anything. But what happened was I basically went to you know michael's channel and jake's channel and i look back over a year's worth you know instead of thinking about it month to month i thought about it year to year and when you look back you know over the course of a year even if it's only seven or eight videos if you're like man i'm extraordinarily proud of those seven or eight videos then it's worth it and and it still ends up being you know, a couple of hours of content that, that you created and you're super proud of over the course of that year. So that's eventually why I kind of convinced myself that this was the way forward for me. Do you see there being with the current state of YouTube and content ID matches and the adpocalypse, more diversification, more YouTubers trying to find avenues outside of the YouTube platform? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I mean, they should be. There's no reason to be tied to one thing, you know, no matter what you're doing. I think that everyone should always be um, diversifying their revenue streams. And, you know, that's I didn't go to business school, but I imagine that's, you know, 
business 101 <laughs> is to be able to have different things to rely upon because yeah you just never know especially with entertainment man it's like entertainment uh, no matter what it is whether it's music or television or, or or film theater it's a fickle thing you know it goes in cycles and you can be popular at one point and all of a sudden your career is over and gosh i, I watched a podcast recently with Polly Shore of all people and I don't think I ever witnessed a more bitter person like that man is so sadly bitter about his career being over and I just felt like well I don't know maybe you know he should have he should have diversified after uh Encino Man <laughs> oh sure right versus just doing the hey I'm the weasel character in all the movies so what you're saying is YouTubers don't be the weasel be Paul Shore instead and get your name out there in a different way. Um, are you shocked or surprised by the apocalypse? Do you think it was bound to happen? Do you think there's going to be more changes to the to the ecosystem of YouTube? Or you have to just roll with the punches and see what happens? Well, I definitely think it was bound to happen. And anyone who says otherwise, I don't know. I don't see how you could think otherwise just because we, we had pretty free reign on YouTube to have ads, have whatever ads run in front of whatever content. You know, I don't know what sort of gatekeepers were involved in making sure that, you know, Coca-Cola wasn't being, having a, having a pre-roll run in front of a racist cartoon. But, you know, once they caught wind of that, then that was it. And the, the door was shut and the brands freaked out and YouTube freaked out and, you know, I, I certainly don't think that YouTube handled it well from the creator side uh, because literally they just cut off people's income. And this is what, you know, many of us do for a living and we rely upon it. And once that, you know, was closed and they said nothing to anyone, it was it was a really bad move. Yeah, it was it was almost like they didn't think that advertisers would be questioning more at some point or have backlash against their ads being placed on, on questionable content they didn't like. It's always it's, it's surprising to me on both ends that Google, Google didn't see it coming or prepare in a better way, but also that content creators didn't see it coming. Like they thought that this, the gravy train would go on forever and not realize that YouTube is not special. Online media is not special. Why would that be treated differently than how you would treat advertisements for traditionally for radio or TV? Like, why would that be different? Because for, in, in those in, in those mediums, advertisers know exactly where their ads are going. They know exactly where their ads are going to be played in front of. So there's no surprises about what their brand or product is associated with. So. There's going to be growing pains, obviously, but I, in my opinion, it was bound to happen. I just was shocked that it took so long to get to there, but then it was—it seemed like no one was prepared for it at the same time. Yeah, and I mean, you know, when they're advertising on television, there's there's so much red tape that they are protected by with with the FCC and and the the channels themselves and affiliates and whatever it is that, yeah, that that Coca-Cola can run an ad during Mad Men and not have to worry about, you know, Don Draper saying a racial epithet like that wouldn't happen. So, uh, you know, comparing that to YouTube where it's the, the, the wild, wild west, um, it's like, you know. A content creator one day can just go absolutely nuts and do something unexpected. 
could, 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 yeah, could do something really <laughs> bad. I mean, I'm surprised, you know, knock on wood, but, you know, the PewDiePie thing was, was terrible for sure, but it could have been a lot worse. Like who who knows what could have happened? Like there there was no actual you know crime committed or, you know what I mean? Like like the level of scandal is what I'm saying. Yeah, you're, um, you're talking about like like say something happened like one of those uh, stupid prank videos that, that thank God aren't as popular anymore. What if someone died or something and it got put up as a video and you have yeah. ads running you have ads running in front of it and all of a sudden you have Walmart going like what the hell we're never advertising on this platform ever again and then right. it just snowballs from there. Like yeah. you're right. It could, you're right. It could have been absolutely as bad as it was. You're right. It could have went from like, well, some some people got hit hard to everyone got hit hard, or right. everyone is, was making ten percent of what they used to. I'm thankful that I wasn't hit extremely hard. I don't know. I don't know if advertisers like me and Ian just talking about old retro game stuff. But I, anyway, speaking of retro games, you're you're a collector. You collect video games. I do. I love I love to collect games, and it was funny. I went to a store. A couple of weeks ago, and I was just looking around, and the guy's like, "So, what do you collect?" And I was like, "Uh, everything." I don't, <laughs> I, can, I don't know. Microvision. Like <laughs> it seemed like right. Like, if anyone collects video games, they're not just like, "Well, I only collect Game Boy Color games." You know, <laughs> it's like maybe you're just working on that collection for a complete set but it's like nobody's just <laughs> collecting yeah, one thing right or you start off on one thing and it's like the OCD thing it's like well, okay well it's it's the I got to get all of them but then afterwards it's like oh what's my next goal what's the chase I mean that happened with me with NES then I went to TurboGrafx-16 then I went to Sega Master System it just kept leapfrogging yeah. you know from one 8-bit system to the next so what what do you okay what is your preference your, your game system preference that you collect for everything what do you focus on if you have a focus so I focused initially on PS1 JRPGs. That that was that was that was like the gateway drug essentially. Very focused, very focused. Yeah, it was very focused. Yeah, because I had a lot of them anyway, so I was like, well, I might as well get all of them um because I'm like halfway there. So, which I think probably is what happens to a lot of game collectors where they're like, well, I already have like 200 NES games, yeah. might as well get the, the last 400. <laughs> yeah, that's what happened to me around 500. I was like, oh, I'm only less than 300 away. This should be simple or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so now, uh, so nowadays I, I, uh, I kind of just collect the games that I would play. You know, I don't collect complete sets. I, I don't collect games that I'm not interested in. So, like, I have a uh, Sega CD collection that's only, like, I don't know, like nine games, and I'm good with them. Like I'm, I'm not Marky Mark. Yeah, in excess. Yeah. Sewer Shark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, isn't there one? <laughs> the Power Rangers one, all the awful ones that that sunk the system. <laughs> <laughs> isn't there one where there's like an anthropomorphic pencil? Isn't that a Sega CD game? I think what so. is that? I got I got I got I got to do a certain Sega CD guidebook after the Super Nintendo book. Uh, <laughs> That'll be a lot shorter. It'll be, there aren't that many Sega CD games. I was going to say, what is there, a couple hundred Sega CD games at, yeah, at most? At something most. like that? Yeah. What, what do you think about the the rise of Twitch and going from finished, quote-unquote, premium content to now? It's just live streaming now. It's like Anything can happen. It's almost like a reality show version of, of YouTube where you just hang out with people and 
you have a community and you see you see your person that you like three or four or five days a week, if not more. Uh, I, I think it's a really clear statement of, about where we are as a culture, honestly, without I don't know if that's too grandiose of a statement, but, you know, we want to relate to people. We want to have our friends and our communities. We want to belong somewhere. And I think that that's what Twitch is. I think that's what let's, you know, live streaming is, is it's like kind of a modern way of connecting with people while still, you know, being wherever you are in your home. Because, I mean, back in the day, you know, you'd be friends with whatever kids lived near you. That's just how that worked. I remember when I was a kid, um, I actually was born on Long Island, not in Cooperstown. And on Long Island, you know, there was a family with a kid my age across the street and then about three blocks one way and about three blocks the other way, there was another couple of kids. And we all hung out. Like those were my friends because they were in walking distance to my house. So we would play and whatever that entailed, play tag or, you know, handball. But that was play. But today, I, I don't know how much of that goes on. If it does, then I'm, you know, maybe I'm wrong. But you, you, you see Twitch as a replacement to neighborhood friends. At least maybe that's how it's culturally becoming with the with the younger generation, possibly. Yeah, and it doesn't have. To, yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be you know kids, but it could even be you know college students. And um, I just think that. I don't know. It's getting harder to I think I think we're having a harder time socializing in person and it's easier to socialize for a lot of people online. Or or maybe, you know, it could just be that introverts like us are a lot more comfortable socialize like we still need to socialize, but maybe we're just a lot more comfortable socializing in our own home. So it can be seen as an escape, but maybe to some it becomes a crutch where because it's so easy to socialize online, you won't go out into the real world as much, perhaps. Uh, I I wonder if the people, the kids that are growing up now with Twitch as their main – because it used to be YouTube was like the main entertainment medium now for kids growing up. And now it sounds like it's coming Twitch even. So I wonder for those kids – They'll either outgrow it when they get older or it's going to be so ingrained in them like TV was to us and now, you know, smartphones are to children that it, they'll when they're 30 and 40, they'll still be going on Twitch every day and looking at people play games. It's it's an interesting question that we're going to be probably, you know, either dead or dying by the time it gets really answered, whether or not Twitch will be seen as a transition or, you know, a, a transitional medium from kids to adults. And, and maybe it goes by the wayside. Like Saturday morning cartoons. You don't watch them forever. Well, I would, but they're gone now. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. You know, I, I know that before social media was really a thing, um, f- like forums were a really big thing. And I, I know Instant Messenger, right? ICQ, things like that. Right. IRC. Yeah, so you had you had that. Yeah, you had like instant. I used just instant messenger to keep in touch with my friends, and then I would use forums to find like other gamers to talk to, essentially. 
And I don't know how popular forums are anymore. Maybe Twitch is just a a more fun version of hanging out in a forum. Except you're just watching video games and not necessarily discussing something per se. Well, you chat with other people in the chat, right? That probably you meet there every day and um well, sure, but I mean, a forum is usually a specialized discussion group for a particular topic. Right. That's what I mean. Where Twitch is a generalized hangout. But, right. all right, we'll see. I, I, you know, I use Twitch for, for the NES Marathon, which is coming back November, everyone. Um, do you see YouTube retracting at some point? Do you see it losing its place in the market? Or being that it's it's strange that it's both a platform and the industry itself like while there are other means of online content getting out there, YouTube is you know the place to be. Do you see that changing, or is it too big to fail at this point? Well, I think it, it's going to be really hard for someone to overtake it. I know that Facebook is trying very, very hard. Facebook is pouring a lot of resources into video, but you know all of the other platforms that have tried over the years. It's just so expensive. Like it's, you know, why do you think like Vine went away? It's like like housing videos and, and, and the streaming, especially now that everything is HD and you even can have 4K. It's like it's crazy, crazy expensive, all of those servers and stuff. I always hear, and I don't, I don't really know if this is true or not, but that, you know, YouTube still just loses money every year because of how expensive it is to maintain. So, you know, I don't know who's coming in. You know, Google, well, Alphabet, I should say, is so big, you know, it has more money than most countries. So, you know, who is coming along that's going to... And they built that money by making money in a way that can't be replicated. Meaning, like, they are the ones who essentially created the marketplace for selling ads online, right? So it's like that doesn't happen again. Like you don't have the Beatles too. Like the Beatles happened and <laughs> I mean you have the monkeys but you know no one likes the monkeys. So that's the the Bing 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 is the monkeys is what I'm trying to say. I think as of last year they were being tight-lipped about whether or not YouTube was profitable, but it looks like at least as of late last year it still wasn't as any indication. So I wonder at some point, if there will be more curated content, it'll be more of a maybe how YouTube Red now is barely advertised. Maybe that's what will be forced upon the majority of people in the future. Or it's like, oh, hey, guys, this isn't free anymore. Pay 10 bucks a month. And it's still a great deal. You can watch all your videos. But now you got to pay 10 bucks a month. And that's the way YouTube will become profitable. And at the same time, it'll force them to maybe focus on uh, premium content like like how Amazon Prime is doing and Hulu and Netflix. I wonder if that's really the salvation where, I don't know, maybe there'll still be uh, room for vlogs and dige- digestible uh, content, the potato chip content, but that's not where the money's going to be at. Maybe. I don't know. Well, listen, it's it's not there now. Like, if you compare the amount of views that music gets on YouTube compared to anything else, everything else is a drop in the, in the bucket. It's insane. If you looked at like a bar graph that showed how many views in the different categories, whether it's, you know, music, vlogging, gaming, whatever music is like 
the Empire State Building and everything else is like, you know, I don't know, something small, a doghouse. <laughs> it, it's 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 become the legal Napster, right? You use it uh, YouTube as a jukebox. You can just search for anything. Yeah. Any song it'll come up. And, and and usually it's associated with the actual artist, so they get they get a chunk of that. Yeah, so, you know, that that's also why it's funny when you know, us as creators, you know, we are really important, obviously, because, you know, we give YouTube its community and its credibility and kind of its face. But just from a pure data perspective, just from a pure raw numbers perspective, like no original creator on YouTube is anything more than the smallest drop in a bucket compared to, you know, like what what was that song that recently came out that has like three billion views? That one song, that dance song. I don't remember what it's called. Not Gangnam Style. Not that one. Not Gangnam Style. <laughs> there's a there's a more that one has like two billion. There's a more recent one that's a that's a dance song. It has it's a uh, Spanish dance song. Yeah, but it's three billion. We don't views. matter is what you're saying. We don't matter. We matter f- from a uh, like PR standpoint, but not from a raw numbers standpoint well, well look at vsauce you guys used to be google employees and now you're not so in, in a microcosm of that google is like oh well, i don't necessarily need to employ you guys directly anymore no and they didn't listen to a lot of you know the the things that we offered in terms of our advice so yeah basically what happened was michael when he created vsauce was working for a company called next new networks in manhattan uh, which is one of the first companies that was dedicated to making YouTube videos, one of the earliest ones. They had an extremely popular channel called Barely Political, and they had this skit, o- Obama Girl. It was this girl who was in love with Barack Obama. Before oh, he- yeah. You remember I'm that? I'm in love with Obama. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this oh, yeah, was absolutely. before Barack Obama ran for president. And this was, yeah, a long time ago. And so Google purchased next new networks as a way of kind of trying to figure out like, like, okay, you know, what is this YouTube thing and what are these creators doing? And like, what are the best practices and like, how can we help other people make YouTube videos? So they wanted like the inside scoop essentially on what makes good YouTube content. So we were part of that. So Vsauce became part of that and we worked with YouTube for years um, just sitting in meetings with engineers and product development and all of these, all of these different like internal teams just to give them advice and feedback on the things that they were working on, uh, pain points, things that we didn't like about the site. And they, you know, they didn't do anything to like help or change our content. They just like, kind of like, we were the weird kids. <laughs> we were the weirdos like who made videos and they just kind of ignored us. And then once a month they'd say like, Hey, what do you think about this? You know, new feature. And we'd be like, eh, uh, change it to this. And they usually wouldn't. And eventually two years ago, they were like, why do we have these people here? Um, let's just <laughs> get, let's just let them make videos, you know, by themselves. What is it that you do here again? I'm important. I have people skills. Damn it. Can't you see that? Yeah. Yeah. The, the bobs came in and yeah, they got <laughs> rid of Lumberg. They got rid of. Uh... <laughs> were, you, were you the guy with the stapler? That's my stapler. Yeah. Just, Prob- uh, hey, Milton and Jerry Bloop are pretty close. I think. That's hey, 
That's hey, a fair we fi- assessment. We figured out a relationship there for, for the eventual comeback. How about it? How about a Kickstarter for season two of Jerry Blue? What do you, what do you say? No, not too crazy. Uh, I don't. I don't know who would possibly f- <laughs> contribute to that, except for you, and uh, I don't know. Maybe my mom. When you, when you put it on Amazon Prime, we get it on there. Get some cachet going. <laughs> hey, I had it on Blip. Oh, that's right. Good old Blip. Good old Blip. That finally took a took a south turn when they run out of investment dollars, and then was bought out by what Disney. And then Disney's like, "Why do we have this?" And they got rid of it. Yeah, Disney did that with with Maker too. Oh yeah, they're they're like what 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 we need these YouTubers talking about video games that we have nothing to do with. No, we don't. We we make we make Star Wars movies. What yeah. is this? Well, <laughs> like, why did this we is, spend five hundred million dollars on this? This is pocket change. So if you invested in in these YouTube networks that got bought out, good for you because you made out. But then they were just dropped unceremoniously when people they probably couldn't they probably didn't realize what to do with them like you know the, the legacy media companies what to do with these YouTubers and all these content creators and what that you know what's a loot crate box and how do we monetize this and it was probably too complicated. Uh, I want to talk about real quick something I was surprised about. How, uh, how about the introvert Kevin on a cruise ship doing a doing a, a gig? Huh? <laughs> yeah, I was scared about that. So. Royal Caribbean reached out and they were doing a special cruise for the solar eclipse and they wanted to have like a science person aboard to do a couple of lectures, make a video about the eclipse and do some social media and some press while on board. So, you know, I did uh, when when CNN was talking about the solar eclipse, they they interviewed me. So that's essentially what I went for. And Man, when I first got that, I was like, oh, I don't know, a cruise? Like, I'm such a homebody. <laughs> I was like, I think most people would be like, oh, my gosh, like free vacation. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to go somewhere. <laughs> but how, know, how long was it? Five days, four days, three days, Is it one day? Event? Um, so the cruise itself was seven days, but I left after three because I wanted to get the video done. I wanted to get the video about the eclipse out as soon as possible because I knew a bunch of people were going to make eclipse videos and they were going to have them up sooner than me because I was out in the middle of the ocean. So I ended up leaving early and I still was like two days later than most people uh, uploading my eclipse video. But it was fun. You know, I, I went into it with low expectations and it ended up having kind of a good time. So, yeah, it was an interesting experience. And one thing, you know, I never would have done without being on YouTube. We have to set up some form of a uh, uh, gaming retro gaming cruise. We can do a talk. We can bring some consoles on board and get a free vacation out of it. I'm up for that. That sounds reasonable. We can, we can get a uh, Norwegian cruises to do that. Yeah, that's a great idea. Every room has some sort of console um, hooked up. I don't know what you would, what you would go with, but maybe one of those, I don't know, one of those like modded Xboxes that play 4,000 games. Oh, sure. You, you put all the ROMs on it. I, I just like to see the stories of people like you, Andre Meadows, who they, they successfully make that transition from the YouTube world to the, the real world. Andre does a lot of hosting. He does videos for Regal Cinema. He's been on sci-fi shows. He hosts Comic-Con gigs. Uh, he's on red carpets for freaking Marvel movies. He he gets out there. And I, I'm guessing that's going to be the future more and more for, for us, um, not just because – 
we, we may not want to do the same videos for 20 years in a row, but maybe maybe we, we have developed uh, business acumen in some aspects, communication, marketing ourselves, where brands outside of YouTube or, or companies uh, can utilize us in some ways. Maybe, maybe this will be uh, a developing uh, field in the future or, or at least another outlet for YouTubers. I definitely think so. I mean, you know, you can maybe think about it in a way that like SNL launches careers um, in film and and TV. You know, you go on SNL for five seasons and then you go to Hollywood and you make your big blockbuster movies. I mean, I don't necessarily think it's like I started on YouTube and now I'm a movie star. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, But it's a very different world for sure. I could tell you when you leave YouTube... And, you know, you're among people who aren't in the bubble of YouTube because they still really don't know. I mean, it, it almost feels like what I do on YouTube is not even real because it, it doesn't matter how many views you get or how many subscribers you have. Once you get into that room, you know, with these people who don't watch YouTube and you're like, yeah, I make YouTube videos. They're like, oh, um, OK, what what does that mean? <laughs> Yeah, I think we take for granted since we're in the ecosystem that we think that everyone's watching YouTube videos. And certainly it skews very young, but you, you, you think that most people over 40, the majority don't watch YouTube. You look at you look at the demographics of your videos and see. But even a, I'd say a chunk of people uh, aren't going on YouTube to watch entertainment. I, I think it's it's not as it's, – it's obviously a lot of more people are on YouTube, but it's not still as prevalent as you th- would think. It's not like a YouTuber um, – anytime soon will be just as famous as a movie star walking down the street. There's still going to be a large gap between that. But I think there's still room for companies to utilize the talents of people that create, you know, online media. Uh, but we'll see what happens in the future there. You know, maybe besides cruises, you'll see us doing appearances at bowling alleys. I don't know. You know, what else, <laughs> what, what else am I qualified for nowadays besides talking about old video games and talking to YouTubers like yourself? So what do you have lined up in the future? What's, what's coming up next? Um, well, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you what the next video is cause I like to keep oh. that a secret, but you know, I kind of touched on a little bit of the research during our conversation here today. You know, the, the main theme I'll just say is about friends and, um, you'll just have the to, show? Wait to see Monica and, and Courtney Cox. What? Yes. It's about David Schwimmer's <laughs> nose. No, <laughs> um, no, it's about friendships. And uh, the human experience of having friends. Oh, okay. Well, maybe you get a cameo in, in there. Where I guess we're kind of friends, maybe. I don't know. We talk once a year. We'll change that up. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll talk more in the future. I have to finish my research before I can determine whether or not we're friends. I'll let you know. <laughs> you have to see if your confirmation bias from social media yeah. uh, checks out or not. Yep. See if we, we can turn the page. All right, Kevin, where can people find you on YouTube, Twitter, social media? Sure, you can check out my YouTube channel at Vsauce2. I also have a Twitter, Vsauce2TWO. And then I also have a personal Twitter, which is just, just at KevLieb, where I, uh, I try to do a, an interesting tweet at least once, to, once a day. It's different than my Vsauce stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. I see you like tweeting within minutes from from both accounts. Where you know Vsauce is the oh, this is the professional corporate, you know, uh, Trisket account, and then you have the off the wall almost Jerry Bloop esque account of your own natural humor. And I get a kick out of those tweets. I respond to some of them when I see them. 
Yeah. I, I, hopefully you're not just hopefully you're not just humoring me when you like some of my my comments and replies. But uh, you know, you never know nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I appreciate that, and yeah, I think it just goes back to my. Um, yeah, my Jerry Bloop roots, but I still have, uh, you know, my Vsauce hat on too. So I, I like to, like to do both. Bring it back. Jerry, Jerry. I'm going to get, I'm going to get a campaign going for you. Do a Patreon for it. There you go. Jerry Bloop Patreon. Oh, saddest Patreon ever. You know, like you reach a certain amount, you'll do an episode again. You know, you got, you got to keep busy in the, in the Poconos, right? You got to. <laughs> yeah. I keep busy enough. Trust me. Uh, I'm well, good. yeah, your 400-hour videos you're creating—that's insane. I expect I expect you to say like 40 hours or 50, 400 hours. Oh my God, come rescue you! All right, Kevin, it was great talking to you, and uh, we'll have to talk soon again, and, and not just do this once a year. Okay, that sounds good. Thanks, Pat. Take care. Thanks again to Kevin for taking the time out to speak to me. You know all about That's It Fruit Bars. Ian and I have spoken about them many a time on the CU Podcast. I barely know how they work, but now there's also That's It Veggie Bars. These are delicious. It's a healthy alternative snack. They're under 100 calories each. No GMO stuff. All organic. My favorites are probably the black beans and peas and the black beans and corn. It's a healthier granola bar. There's four grams of protein. You get four grams of fiber in here. They won't weigh you down. When you eat this, you're going to be like, all right, that's good. It'll tie me over until dinner or the next snack. You're not going to feel like you're going to die with these. (laughs) Check them out. Go to that'sitfruit.com. Use code NOTCOMMON and you save 10% on any order. It's good for kids. It's good for adults. Throw it in your car if you want a lunchtime treat at work or school, midday snack. I usually have one after a workout. Again, it's a healthy snack alternative. This will get the job done. Again, go to thatsitfruit.com, enter code NOTCOMMON, and save 10%. That's it for this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please, please think about subscribing on your podcast platform of choice, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, or whatever you use to listen to them. Please like the podcast, if you actually do. Leave a comment and spread the word on social media and let others know how much you enjoy it. Finally, if you want to help directly support me and the Not So Common Podcast, please check out my Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Thanks, and I'll see you next time.